Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. Well, we're in Psalms, and the Psalms are a poetic expression of the human experience that examine the tension between humanity, the world, and God. The Psalms in and of themselves create a vivid picture. They create an image of how we should respond to the reality of our world when it runs into the revelation of our God. What the Psalms do is they present for us uh, this beautiful, moving uh, picture because it's, it's musical, man, it's poetic. And music has always had this special ability, this unique ability to move us to our very souls. That's why John Calvin calls the Psalms uh, an, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. Because it's not only the, the author that we see laid bare, but through reading those Psalms, through, through hearing those experiences, what it does is it lays us out on the table as well. It, it reveals to us who we are and how we should live because the Psalms through their music, man, they're an immediately understandable thing. Man, it's, it's in, instantly relatable. And many times it's even inspirational, much like this music right here. beautiful ballad. <laughs> this, this song, this songbird of our generation known as Krispy Kreme, who later changed his name to Froggy Fresh to avoid trademark disputes. Uh, Krispy Kreme slash Froggy Fresh, what he does is he just, he just speaks to the reality of our world, right? He just lays it out. And he uses this audio accomplishment to illustrate to us the harsh truth that, you know what? We're people who fail. We're people who are going to fail. We're people who are going to get dunked on. It's going to happen. Uh, We're people who are going to step in dog poo, be called Captain Poopy Shoes all day. That's going to happen, right? We're all destined for that. We are in and of ourselves people who fail. We fail academic assignments, right? Some of us walked into college, we're like, never. And then we get a month in, we're like, sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. We're going to fail scholarship requirements. We're going to fail application processes. We're going to fail relational desires. We're going to fail uh, family demands. We're going to fail even our personal expectations for how we should live or how our life should look. 
We are a people who find ourselves in failure. It's not a question of whether or not we're going to fail. It's a question of when. And when we fail, the reality is that we have the potential in that failure to hurt ourselves. We have the potential in that failure to hurt the people around us. Again, it's not a question of if we fail, it's a question of when. And the best question, then the greatest question is how do we respond to that failure? How do we move through that failure? How do we respond? What do we say? What do we do in light of the fact that we're all going to fail because when we fail, we as believers have an incredible opportunity. When we fail as believers, as Christians, as people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, when we fail, we have an opportunity to run to the Lord. We have an opportunity not only to run to the Lord on our own, but to inspire others behind us to do the same. We have an opportunity as believers in the midst of failure to walk out as better versions of ourselves. We have an opportunity in failure as believers to proclaim the gospel stronger, louder, clearer than our successes ever could. This morning we're in Psalm 51 and we're reading about failure. Specifically, we're reading from a man who's in the midst of failure. And we're gonna see in his response something beautiful. We're gonna see in Psalm 51 that while the world may, may run away in failure, they may, the world may just collapse in the midst of failure, what we see in Psalm 51 is an illustration of how we as believers, we are called to confess our mistake, but then to commit ourselves to God's mission. That's what we see in our response to failure. Because David, as he's writing, the the author of Psalm 51 is David, one of the great kings of Israel. And he's writing this in the midst of failure. He was just confronted, right before he wrote Psalm 51, he was confronted by the prophet in Israel at that time, a guy named Nathan. And Nathan came to David and he essentially reminds him of a failure in David's life that he had committed about a year prior. About a year before Psalm 51 was written, David had sex with a married woman. And she got pregnant. And so to cover up his mistake, to try to cover up and hide from that failure, he murdered her husband. He had her husband murdered. And Nathan just kind of brings that to light. Through a story, through some discussion, he brings that to light in David. And David is face to face with one of the greatest failures of his lives. So inspired by the Holy Spirit, he begins to write in Psalm 51, verse one, he says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your loyal love. He says, because of your great compassion, wipe away my rebellious acts. God, wash away my wrongdoing. Lord, cleanse me of my sin. When confronted with the reality that he is a failure, when confronted with the harsh truth that he was going to fail, that he had failed in a huge way, that he had failed to follow the Lord's law, that he had failed to follow the Lord's commandments, In the midst of that, God moved David to confession. Why? Because confession is crucial for healthy relationships. Because health, because confession is crucial for healthy relationships. A few years ago, uh, there was a study conducted uh, by the University of Virginia, and they were wanting to study the effects of apologies on children. 
So the way they set it up is they put these kids in a room, they give them a bunch of cups, they said, hey, you're gonna build a tower, and if you finish the tower, uh, we're gonna reward you with like some candy or whatever. So the kids start building, and just as they get close to being done, one of the workers, the, the person conducting the study, would go in, an adult, and she would say, hey, that's really great, let me just borrow one cup real quick, and then pulling out a cup, she would knock over their entire tower, right as they were on the cusp of victory. And so they had two possible, there was a fork in the road at that moment, there were two possible outcomes. The adult, she would either apologize or she would not. They wanted to see what does this do? What kind of ramifications does this have in their lives? And they said what they found, and I quote, they said, what was surprising was that children who experienced a minor transgression and heard an apology, they felt just as bad as those who did not hear an apology, right? So the pain was the same. And this was all conducted, this is being said by Marissa Drell, uh, seen here, uh, about to drop a hot mixtape or something. And she, she's kind of explaining the, the results of what they found. She says, the reality is that their pain was the same, right? Whether it was an apology or not, they've still felt the same hurt. But those who heard the transgressor say, I'm sorry, actually shared more with that person later. In other words, catch this, she says, the apology repaired the relationship even though it did not mitigate their hurt feelings. See that? She says the pain, the hurt, I mean, it was still there, it was still present, but what the apology did is it mended the relationship, brought renewal and repair to that relationship. Now, I don't know what inspired her to torture a bunch of children. I don't know what brought it to that point. Uh, I mean, based on this photo, I'm assuming that their tears just make her stronger. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But what she found is incredible. That essentially what we've seen, what we've experienced, there is, there is evidence, right? They've conducted a study to find this is something that maybe we felt to be true. Here is just a published proof that relationships need forgiveness. Relationships need confession. Healthy relationships rely upon regular forgiveness because the reality is that the person that you marry, the person you work with, the person that you're friends with, the person that you live with, whatever it is, that person is going to hurt you. And the reality is that you are going to hurt that person. And that's just going to keep happening. So forgiveness, confession, repairing that relationship, I mean, it's, it's crucial. And God wants the same from us in our relationship with him. Now I should say, I, I need to you know, point out, we get to stand confidently in our secure relationship as God's children, right? Now that's, that's just our gospel. The reality that Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for our sake. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we could not live and he died the death that we deserved. Because he did not himself deserve that death, he was able to take on all of our sin, all of our failures, all of our mistakes, the things that were separating us from the God who made us, the God who loves us, the God who wanted a relationship with us and yet couldn't because of those failures, because of those sins, because of those mistakes that, that led to the breaking of our relationship, the death of that relationship. Jesus Christ took that upon himself and he died for it. He paid the penalty for our sin. And so when he rose from the grave three days later, what he did is he displayed God's power over sin and over death. He displayed God's power over our mistakes and over our failures. And he made possible a relationship with the God of the universe. So that suddenly, if I'm willing to place my trust, if I'm willing to place my faith in Jesus Christ as my God, as my savior, 
then suddenly I'm no longer a child of wrath, as Paul describes us. Instead, I'm adopted out of sin. I'm adopted out of death. I'm freed from the bondage of slavery to sin. And I'm made free. I am made new. And I'm adopted into God's family. I become a son or a daughter of the Lord Most High. That's our gospel. And that is certain. And that is secure. And nothing will change that. Nothing will shift or change or eliminate that position. Because I'm standing in the righteousness of Christ. It is given to me. God doesn't look at me and see someone who's just continuing to fail and continue to be terrible. He sees someone who's redeemed by the blood poured out by his own son. That's what he sees. We're secure in that relationship. I mean, that's a, that's a security, that's a certainty that, that should move us, right? That, that's something that's incredible. That, that's a certainty that should move us to speak differently and live differently and, and talk to people differently. It's something that moves us to one of my favorite kind of things, one of, our favorite, one of my favorite practices that we have within the church. An illustration of our alignment with Christ is baptism. I talked about this last week. I'm saying it again right now. We are going to perform baptisms here in our college service on October 9th. And I would encourage you to consider being a part of it. If you have never been baptized as a believer, if you've never just taken the steps to publicly proclaim, hey, look, I'm a Christian. I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner in need of a savior and my faith in him. And I'm united with him, not only in his death and not only in his burial, but also in his resurrection. That's what baptism signifies and illustrates and displays and proclaims to the world around us. So I would encourage you, if you haven't gone through that, consider it. Send an email to Ashley. She and I are working together on this. We're, we're collecting people. We're, we'll give you the next few steps. It's a very short process. But consider contacting us. Let us know that you want to be a part of that October 9th. Because, man, it's a beautiful, beautiful image of our unity with Christ, of the security of that relationship. But while we're standing secure in that relationship, we need to recognize that our choices still matter, that we're made in the image of God. Therefore, we are able to make important decisions, that we've been given a will. And those decisions, man, they matter. While we stand in Christ's righteousness, we will still need to seek the forgiveness of our Father because we're gonna continue to do things that are against his will, that are outside of his desires. And those things are still sin. So while a relationship is secure, it can be strained. We have a daughter. My wife and I have a daughter. She's awesome. Her name is Charlotte. She's coming up on two years old and she uh, has a bunch of cousins that live here in town. We get together with them uh, semi-regularly. Uh, we eat dinner. Uh, Charlotte eats a lot more dinner than everyone else, apparently. Uh, good for her. And uh, essentially, they're always gonna be cousins, right? That's, that's, that's not gonna change. They will always be cousins. They are secure in that position with one another. However, that relationship can and does become strained at times. Right? Let's say some lady walks in and like knocks over all their cup towers. I don't know. <laughs> if that were to happen, their relationship with one another would become strained. Or if she walks in and says, you should knock over your cousin's cup tower, because I'm assuming that's how she speaks and how she hunches when she speaks. And that's, that would strain the relationship. Right? Like they would be at odds with one another. There would be a need for confession. There'd be a need for forgiveness. And God says, you know what? My relationship with you is secure. And yet you're still going to do things that are against the Lord's will. There's still going to be things in your life that you need to confess. Some of us, man, we're, we're afraid to stand confidently in Christ's righteousness. Some of us, that's, that's our struggle. We feel uncertain. We feel unworthy. We feel like there's these certain things that we've done or said. But man, you need to ask the Holy Spirit 
your guide, your counselor, your constant help to reassure you in that. You can stand confidently in the righteousness of Christ. There's no condemnation for anyone who calls on the name of Christ Jesus. Be sure of that. But some of us, we struggle to seek the Father's forgiveness. Some of us, we feel like there's something that we've done or said that just went a little too far that we don't really want to bring up, that we don't really want to think about, we don't really want to talk about. And again, I would say you need to ask the Holy Spirit to move in your heart, to give you strength, motivation, to confess that to the Father, to seek his forgiveness. But some of us, man, we're out of practice or we've never done that. We're saying, how do I even seek that forgiveness? How do I even confess my sin to the Lord well? And thankfully, we see it in Psalm 51. David kind of lays it out. What we see over the next three verses are three principles that guide our confession to the Lord. The first one is that we need to be admitting this fault to ourselves. He says, I'm aware of my rebellious acts. I'm forever conscious of my sins. We see that, G, or we see that David was willing to admit to himself that he had made mistakes. Right, which sounds simple, and yet is often hard for us. Many times we like to go into sort of denial mode. My daughter Charlotte is still uh, wearing diapers. That's generally what you do when you're 21 months old. And so she, uh, from time to time, has to have them changed, right? That's just a part of our life. It has been for quite some time. Uh, and we're moving her towards the moment of, you know, independence where she gets to use the potty and all that great stuff. And so part of that is we try to include her in the process. We try to ask her like, hey, did you go potty? We're trying to train her to just tell us when she goes because that's just sort of step one. You'll get there. So, uh, or hopefully you're all there personally. Uh, <laughs> you'll get other people there at some point. So we've involved her in the process. We say, hey, let us know when you go potty. Now, a lot of times I will know when she goes, right? Like it is, oh, it is evident that she has gone poo-poo. And so I will ask her in those moments, I try to, again, bring her in the process, say, hey, did you go? Did you go poo-poo? Did you go poo-poo in your diaper? Nine times out of 10. No. <laughs> but not only no, right? Even if it was just that, I'd be like, oh, okay. But she says, no. And then she immediately follows it up with, clean. <laughs> All clean. Because that's what we say when we're done changing her diaper. And so when she says that, Man, I know, I know she's wrong. I'm, I, I look at her and I say, you, I know that you're dirty on your bottom and I know that you're dirty in your soul because you're a liar. Like that is false. That is a false thing that you just said. You are purposefully trying to subvert the truth so that you avoid having clean diapers. Doesn't make any sense. But we do this. Man, we have things in our lives. We've said things, done things, hurt people and people will come up to us or the Lord starts tugging on our hearts and he says, hey, you need to right that wrong. You need to confess that sin. And yet we as individuals was like, uh, uh-uh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm good. Like I'm clean. There's nothing wrong with me. I, I didn't say, I didn't mean to hurt them that way or I didn't mean to like skip that class or sleep through that meeting. I didn't mean to hurt them. They're just taking it that way or, or I said these things and, and they're misinterpreting it or, or, or I just, you know, I, there was these circumstances circumstances at work and it wasn't my fault. And so many times what we do is we lie to ourselves. And we try to say, no, I'm, I'm clean. I'm good. And we're not. David says, I'm aware of my acts. I'm forever conscious of my sins. If you need to be confessed, if you're confessing your sin to the Lord, your mistakes, your failure to God, you need to start by admitting it to yourself. And then you admit it to God. 
Then we see in verse four that David says that it's against you, God, you above all that I have sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. So you are just when you confront me. You are right when you condemn me. He says, God, look, I I recognize the fact that all sin is ultimately against you. All sin is ultimately against God. Why? Because he's the father of all creation. He's He's the Lord of all the earth. And so when I'm hurting something in his creation, I'm hurting one of his children or I'm hurting myself as his child, man, that goes to him. It doesn't just stop in the here and now. If you came to my house this afternoon and kicked my daughter, Charlotte, (laughs) first of all, why would you do that? Second of all, there would be a lot of ramifications from that. The first of which you would need to apologize to her, right? Like if you saw the error of your ways, you're like, oh, snap, kicking is, oh, it's bad, I forgot. Like if you need to apologize to my daughter, Charlotte, but you would also need to apologize to me and to my wife. Why? Because we're her parents, because we love her, because you came into our space and you hurt our person. And if we are sinning against people in this world or if we're sinning and hurting ourselves with our failure, man, that doesn't just stop here. It goes all the way to the Lord. He is the recipient of our mistakes. He is the one who's hurt by our failure. So David says, God, I I recognize that. I recognize that my sin, I mean, it spreads far and wide. I'm willing to admit my sin, not only to myself, I'm willing to admit my mistake to you and God, I'm willing to, I need to admit there's a deeper problem. He says in verse five, look, I was a guilty of sin from birth, a sinner the moment my mother conceived me. Look, you desire integrity in the inner man. You want me to possess wisdom. Right here, the word that he's using is hain. That's what look, if you're reading King James, it'll say behold, which is awesome. But essentially this word look in the Hebrew, it just means like, hey, look at this thing. Or like, hey, listen, or look at, you know, watch this thing or, or yo, check it out. Like that's, that's the word right there in Hebrew. And what David's using, he's using it intentionally to draw our attention to two contrasting ideas because that's Hebrew poetry, right? It's, it's ideas that line up with each other, either as parallels or contradictory. And he says, look, I've been guilty since birth. Look, you want me to be perfect. You desire integrity. David's saying, he's admitting, look, God, there's a deeper problem. I have nothing to blame for my sinful mistake other than myself. He says, this started with me from day one. It's not the circumstances I find myself in. It's not the people that are interacting with me. God, the sin that's in my life, it's on me. And that's hard to admit. It's really hard to admit. No, who drew on Mammy's mirror? I don't know. Was it you? No. Who was it? A Batman. <laughs> A Batman. Batman did it. A Batman did it. It's Batman. Batman did it. <laughs> Batman drew on that mirror. Now, for those of you that are like, wow, really? No, he's lying, all right? He's lying. <laughs> that's not true. That man is real, but he didn't do that, all right? So he is trying to shift blame. And you know what the reality is, is this is what we do. We generally are a little bit more effective than blaming Batman for our problems, but we will shift blame, and we'll shift blame all day. I will shift blame all day. When you look in the Garden of Eden, you see the, the beginning of the fall of man, uh, the beginning of the fall of humanity. What you see in that moment is immediately there's blame being shifted. When God comes to Adam and comes to Eve and says, hey, what happened? They start to shift blame to other people. They try to shift blame to God himself. Because there's something in us that doesn't want to own that mistake. There's something in us that wants to push 
that blame off of our backs. And yet what David shows us is that to truly confess our sin before the Lord, to really come to him humbly confessing, we've got to own that. We've got to admit to ourselves. We've got to admit to the Lord. We have to admit that there is a deeper problem. So my question for you is, where do you struggle to do this? Where do you struggle to admit your failure? Is it to yourself? Is it to God? Is it to other people? Is it to the people that you've hurt? Is it to the people that maybe could just encourage you and and make you better? Where is it that you struggle to admit this? Where do you try to shift blame for the failure in your life? Thankfully, God doesn't just leave us in our failure. Thankfully, this isn't the end of David's story. What we see in the very next verse is David says, God, sprinkle me with water and I will be pure. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. God, grant me the ultimate joy of being forgiven. May the bones you crushed rejoice and hide your face from my sins because God, wipe away all my guilt. David says, Lord, I want you to move in and correct me. He doesn't say, I just, I, he doesn't just sit there in confession and say, God, this is the problem. He's identified it. That's what confession does. It identifies the issue, but it doesn't do anything to change it. And so David looks at God and he says, Lord, I need you to come in. I need you to correct me. God, I need you to come in and I need you to literally crush some bones. And I want to rejoice in that. Like literally what he's talking about is, is the idea that, you know, if you have a medical issue, a lot of times for long-term health, you have to go through some short-term pain or short, short-term discomfort, right? A lot of us that are here right now, at some point in our lives, we had braces, right? And we had that moment for like homecoming or prom where you're standing on the stairwell taking pictures and the parent, some parents like, there's like a million dollars in teeth. And this, uh, but you have braces, right? So many of us have walked through that path in life where we had braces. And when you have those braces, what do you do? Man, it's painful. It hurts. You get them tightened. You're doing these wires and you get these rubber bands. You're like, ah, and it's crazy, and yet, every time you go into the appointment and they're just jabbing you in the mouth, you're thinking, for the joy set before me, for the joy set before me of the straight teeth that will forever bite the food so well. Like, I, I, I want that in my future. I want long-term health. And so we're willing to go through that short-term pain. We try to rejoice in it because we recognize, you know what, this short-term discomfort, it's gonna hurt. It's not gonna be fun, but I need it for long-term health but then you don't wear your retainer and it all, and then it doesn't work. So whatever. So my question for you is, man, where are you open to correction? Where do you invite correction into your life? Who do you involve in that correction? Because what we see in David's life is that God uses a person to bring that correction. He uses the prophet Nathan. God does that a lot. God loves to use people in our correction. So who have you allowed into that circle? Who do you allow to correct you? Is there a person that has freedom to step into your life and correct you lovingly, graciously, in the right time, in the right way. But is there a person who does that? Are you open to that correction? Who is your spiritual orthodontist? <laughs> Send someone a text today that says, you, you are my orthodontist. I don't know. Who is that person? Who's that person in your life? Because we need it. Because correction needs to come. We're going to fail, right? It's only a matter of time. So who can correct us in that? But David says, I, Lord, I don't need you to just correct me. I also need something bigger. I need something greater. I need something deeper. He says, God, create for me a pure heart. 
It says, God, renew a resolute spirit within me. Do not reject me. Do not take your spirit away from me, but let me again experience the joy of your deliverance. He says, God, sustain me by giving me the desire to obey. David is willing to admit, God, you know what? I'm gonna continue to make these mistakes. I'm gonna continue to to have these errors and I'm gonna continue to have sin in my life. So Lord, what I need is not just correction. God, I need you to go further. I need you to go deeper. God, I need you to go to my heart of hearts and I need you to change me at my innermost being. God, I need you to shift my desires. God, I need you to change. Give me the desire to obey you. God, I need you to transform me into someone new. He says, God, I don't want you to take away your spirit. David was terrified that God would take away his spirit. Why? Because David had seen that. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's ministry was different than now. In the Old Testament, the spirit would come and it would leave. It was a temporary kind of measure. And David had seen it. The king before him, Saul, had the spirit of God with him, empowering him, moving him, guiding him. And yet Saul committed mistake after mistake and failed and failed and failed and was unrepentant and did not confess and did not want to be redeemed. And so the Lord took his spirit. At the end of Saul's life, the Lord took his spirit away from Saul. And David saw that and it scared him to death. He said, God, I don't want that. He says, God, I want you to move into my heart. God, I want you to change me. Lord, I want your spirit always with me. Thankfully, we as modern believers, we have the benefit of a Holy Spirit that resides within us as the language that we see. It takes up residence with us as our constant help, our constant guide, our constant comfort, our constant counselor made possible through the work of Jesus Christ. David says, I need your spirit. Why? Because God, I need you to change something within me. I need you to restore me. And he knows that God will. That's what's beautiful is he recognizes that after God reprimands, I mean, he loves to restore. He loves to redeem. After the Lord breaks someone down, he loves to build them back up. He loves to bring blessing where there was breaking. That's what our God is. Our God loves to restore what was broken and destroyed and make something new. About 500 years ago, 600, sorry, about 600 years ago, in Japan, they were fixing pots one day and they were like, oh, okay, we got to, you know, broke this pot. I got to fix it up and glue it back together. And someone, I don't, it, the, the, how it actually happened is a little bit unknown. It's a little unclear, but someone had the idea of, well, what if we're going to have this patched up pot instead of trying to hide the cracks? What if we just highlight them and be like, hmm, design choice. Sort of like the whole shabby chic movement of our modern age. Like, what if I just have a messy table and I'm like, hmm, farmhouse. Like, what if I just do that? What if I just highlight that? And so it gave us the Japanese art form of kintsugi. And it's this really cool thing where essentially it's continued to this day and age. They will intentionally break pots just so they can mend them together. And what they do is they, in the glue, in the mending process, they'll use gold dust or they use gold coloring to highlight where it's been glued back together. And they'll say, this is just a quote, they say, this technique, it finds and it amplifies the imperfections of the object that's applied to. It shows us hidden layers of meaning that we would have missed without the restructuring. They've made this really cool art form, this really cool technique, where you say, you know what? Yeah, it was broken, but once it's mended, once it's restored, it's almost even better than before. That's what our God loves to do. He loves to take people who are broken, put them back together, and they're better than ever. And he uses us more powerfully than he ever could before our failure. So my question for you is, where do you need restoration? Where do you need to be mended? Have you asked the Lord to move in your heart in that way? 
Have you asked the Lord to step in and bring healing and bring renewal? Have you asked the Lord to, to move you forward? Have you brought people into that process? Because people are good for correction, but God also uses people all the time for restoration. That's why you need a community of believers who have the same goal of knowing God and making God known. You need to find those people, whether it's with an organization, whether it's with your roommates, whether it's with a, a Bible study here at Grace at a different church. You need people that are following the same God as you, who are committed to the same mission of restoration as you. Because God's gonna need to use them when you fail. And thanks to David's willingness to confess and his desire to be restored, what we see is that his story doesn't just end with failure. Our stories don't have to end with failure. David goes on in Psalm 51, and he says, then after all these things, right, after I've confessed, after you've, after you've corrected me, after you've restored me, he says, then I will teach rebels your merciful ways, and sinners will turn to you. Rescue me from the guilt of murder, O God, the God who delivers me, because then my tongue will shout for joy because of your deliverance. O Lord, give me the words, then my mouth will praise you. God moves David to confession because he wants David to move past it. God brings him to that moment of confession because he knows that there's a higher calling on David's life. Now, there are still grave consequences for his sin, but God's calling was still great. God's calling was still greater than those consequences. The Lord wanted David to recognize, the Lord wants us to recognize. That's where we confess our mistake. He still wants us to be committed to his mission. While our restoration begins as this inward process, the reality is that it should work itself out. That our failure, what it does is it moves us towards humility. Now, humility is not thinking less of myself, lowering my opinion of myself to think that I'm, I'm worse or terrible or whatever it is. Humility is not thinking less of myself, but it is thinking less about myself. It's turning my eyes from here to out here shifting my focus away from just my personal issues, my personal failures or successes. Humility doesn't mean that I consider myself worthless, but what it means is that I consider the Lord and I consider other people to be more worthy of my time and of my energy and of my thoughts and of my effort. Failure should produce a humble heart. David says, that's the sacrifice that you want, God. That's your end goal, that we would come to you not as people who are broken and just, and just depressed about it, but the people who are broken and yet rejoicing because they know that you can reset our bones, that, God, you can put us back together and you can make us better than before. And, God, you don't just want to leave us in our brokenness, but, Lord, you want to pull us out and you want to use us for your purpose. No matter how many problems we might have, God, you still wanna use us in your purpose. If we respond to our failure with confession and correction and restoration, we are better prepared to be a part of God's purpose, to take the gospel forward, to be leaders. Pastor in Oklahoma, a guy named Craig Rochelle, who's talking about leadership, said essentially that people don't want a leader who's always right. Instead, he says, people, they want a leader who's always real. Great leaders, they admit mistakes. Invincibility does not draw the eyes of God or man, but vulnerability does. A great leader is someone who's willing to step up and say, you know what, I've made mistakes. I've done stuff that's wrong. 
I haven't practiced what I've preached. I haven't always gone the right direction. I haven't always given the best advice. I haven't always approached things with the right attitude. I haven't always loved people well. Sometimes I go down weird, weird paths where I force children to knock over towers and I drink in their tears. Great leaders are people who are willing to admit that they're broken. And I'll tell you, when that happens, when you see that person, you want to follow them. You want to go where they're going. There's something about that vulnerability that's just attractive. And that's who we need to be. Because you know, the reason that we're here, the reason we exist as Grace College is that we want to raise leaders to reach the world. That's what we want to do. That's the vision that was cast by Jesus Christ that we've grabbed a hold of and that we're running with. We want to raise leaders to reach the world. We know that every single person that's in this room right now, every single one of you, has the ability, has the, the opportunity to be a strong, powerful influence in your context. Whatever organization you're in, the degree that you're chasing, the, the people in your house, I mean, I know that you have incredible potential to lead. And it starts with being vulnerable. It starts with being able to confess that you failed. But not to just sit there, but to say, God, I want you to move. I want you to correct me. I want you to restore me. And God, I want to recommit myself to your mission. So my question for you is, where is God calling you to be a part of his mission of restoration? Where is God calling you to be a part of his purpose? Is it with your family, your roommates, your, just, your, just your lab partner? <laughs> Who is it that God wants to use you to share the gospel with or to bring correction to or to invite correction from, probably more accurately? What context is God calling you to that maybe you're already in where you can be his influence, where you can be a leader to reach his world? Where is that? Well, hello. Welcome to the Grace College Podcast. My name is Jacob Smith. And I'm Kevin Barra. And man, we are so glad that you're joining us. Uh, the purpose of this podcast is just so that we might look deeper into our messages and just down the road for our ministry, highlight maybe things we wish we had time to talk about or highlight events that we have coming up. Uh, man, this week was our second week in Psalms. It was. It, it was. was super fun. It was. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a hard topic, though. <laughs> It was, you know, I, I got a great, fe- a lot of great feedback from it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we were talking about David's biggest mistake of his life uh, in, yeah. from, in Psalm fifty-one, and uh, yeah, I mean, what do you do when you blow it? When you make big mistakes? When you fail? And uh, so yeah, for a lot of our students, I just feel like it hit them right where they where they were. Um, but Jacob, you got a question. 
from yeah. someone? Well, so part of what David, part of his process was he had to confess his sin before the Lord. And part of that was just admitting not only to himself, not only to God that there had been mistakes made, but also admitting that there was a deeper problem and that mm-hmm. his root issue is just the sin that is intrinsic to who he is. It was something that he's born with. He, he alludes to it in Psalm 51 where he says that uh, he was a sinner from birth mm-hmm. um, and from the moment that he was conceived. And, and uh, essentially, I, I was talking with a student and I had further questions about that. Now, I would just encourage anyone that's interested in that. That's the concept of original sin. Right. Uh, and it's most clearly explained in Romans chapter 5. Paul kind of goes in detail into uh, our depravity and how there is this issue that we're born with it as through Adam's sin, so all uh, were given sin. So we all are, you know, death was brought into the world. But uh, the best thing about Romans 5 isn't just that it explains that doctrine, but that it also uh, provides the flip side, the incredible hope that we have in Christ, how yeah. just as through one man's sin, death was brought in, through one man's death, through Jesus Christ's sacrifice, life was offered to everyone freely as a, as a gift of grace. So, uh, yeah, so I would just recommend looking into that, reading that. If that was something that kind of threw you off, uh, I would encourage you just checking that out. Yeah, and a couple couple resources that might be helpful in reading a little deeper on that. Um, Moody Handbook of Theology mm-hmm. is a great resource to talk about the, some of those theological issues, um, and uh, and it'll really help you to kind of open the door on what original sin is. Moody yeah. Handbook of Theology. That's really good. Another another piece is uh, the overall psalm is really D- David's response to God when he is confronted by a friend, Nathaniel, mm. and really the whole thing is about repentance in large part. How do I... Uh, Start again when I've messed up, and uh, and for sure we we all have original sin in us, but man, there's moments when it flares up, and and we make some major mistakes, and we have to walk down this kind of path toward restoration and relationships, and and so I would just encourage you as as you listen to these messages, if you feel hurt or you feel like you've really blown it with God, uh, you're not where you should be. We have in the the life of of David an example of a a horrendous moment in his life, mm-hmm. uh, and and he is still considered a man after God's own heart, mm-hmm. and it's because he simply returned to God, confessed his sin, received cleansing, and was really able to start again with God. And so I would just encourage you. So if you if you feel like you are so distant from God that you've made so many mistakes that He wouldn't want you, I would just say this: put your faith in Jesus. He has died for you, as Jacob has said earlier, and you are fully welcomed to start again. Um, one story that we didn't really share from, from the Bible is really the story of the prodigal son, where the son goes up and blows his dad's income, blows his estate, and when he comes back, he's, he's welcomed home by the father. And that's, and that's true for all of us. Mm-hmm. We, we make big mistakes, but we're welcomed home yeah. by the father. Yeah, it's powerful. It's hard, but it's, there's a lot of hope. There's yeah. a lot of hope there. Um, so... Looking ahead for our ministry, one of the big things we have coming up uh, is Girls' Night. It is on September 29th. It starts at 6 p.m. in downtown Bryan uh, at the Grand Stafford, the theater down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, it's, uh, as you can probably tell from the name, it is for our lady folk. Yeah. It is for the women in our midst. <laughs> uh, and they are just invited to essentially go to downtown Bryan to hear from a— there's a variety of topics being discussed from stages, but it's short, really short messages because they really just want to be a conversation starter. Mm-hmm. And so the the fullness, like really the main thrust of the night is— 
uh, dinner that you get after the talks. You, yeah. You're divided into small groups. You go and you have guided discussion. You get to just engage with the topic that you saw presented, talking about it with other you know, girls that are walking through the same stuff, same pursuits, same issues, uh, same successes, same failures. And, and you're able to just encourage one another and learn from each other in that kind of environment. It's super yeah. powerful. We've done it last few years, and it's it's just a lot of fun. So yeah. September 29th, 6 p.m., downtown Bryan. And I would say this, even if you have other events that you want to do that night, well, you you can do both. The, yeah. way the, the way the night is structured, you can really do both. So hope to see you out there at Girls' Night. It will be a rocking good time. Super good. Hey, thanks so much for joining us with with the Grace College Podcast. Have a great week. Talk to you later.